Good morning, church. All right, finishing up our, our, our study of the apostles as we're nearing the finish line. Can you believe it's actually happening, or does this just seem like this is the ongoing blessing of a continual sermon again and again and again as we are studying the apostles? Up to 12 apostles that Jesus picked out of his disciples, and we are on sermon 14. So what's that tell you? Either your pastor's a little slow, or it's a really good sermon series, one or the other. Maybe the pastor's in his own mind thinking it's a great sermon series, but I think it is good. So ordinary men transformed, called and transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ as he took them and trained them personally for two plus years to change them from just common men seeking God to men who would carry the gospel to the ends of the earth and change our history forever. We celebrate that today. Men who at that time would have had nothing but maybe a simple headstone of anything to remember their lives, but now have their names on the foundation pillars of the new Jerusalem that we will see one day when we are with Christ. Men who uh, sought God and found him. Men who encourage us because as we seek God, we too can find him and we too can be transformed as we look at the the edginess, the rough, rough edges, the commonness, the ordinariness of these men and how God transformed and changed them. And hopefully it's encouraging us that no matter where we are, God can do that same miracle in us. But first, a couple of very important facts. Um, I don't know if anyone's read lately, an article came out that archaeologists have found the remains of the 12 apostles. They're now called the 12 apostles. Apostles. Christy's not even in there to hear it. And a quick survey question. Do you know why Jesus washed the apostles' feet? So he could save their souls and cleanse them. Okay. Never mind. The comedy routine is over. It's not going to happen, is it, Tara? No. She thought she was hurt before church. Now she's really struggling. So let's look again to Luke chapter 6. One last time as we dig into the apostles' Luke chapter 6, then we'll be in John 14 if you want to turn there also. But Luke 6, verses 12 to 16, we read one last time, is the calling of the 12 apostles out of the hundreds or thousands of disciples, that uh, the process that Jesus went through to bring them to him as apostles and to bless them and minister them and train them. So we read, starting in verse 12, it says that, that it was at that time that Jesus went off to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, who he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. Well, in there, as we are taking a look at the 11th apostle called James, or Judas, the son of James. And I don't know if you've noticed, uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of doing a little ping pong game with the apostles, that we go from one apostle that's just kind of radical and out there, to the next apostle that's kind of mellow and quiet in the backgrounds. So do you remember the apostle that we looked at last week? Nobody can remember. Very good. Simon the Zealot. He comes right before Judas, the son of James, in your Bible, if you need a quick hint. So Simon the Zealot, he was one of those fiery temple-tempered people. And now we come to Judas, the son of James, who is an obscure man in the background again, 
very quiet, very behind the scenes, not a lot known about him, but extremely important in the spreading of the gospel and in the kingdom of God. Now, Judas, the son of James, sometimes we, it's, it's almost too bad he had that name because when we think of the name Judas, what do we think of? Yeah, Judas Iscariot. We don't have a very good flavor about that name anymore, do we? Well, here is another Judas in the group of 12 that we have. And it's interesting because the name Judas means either praise or Jehovah leads. Now, that's actually an awesome name, right? It's the kind of name you'd give your kid thinking, man, I hope God blesses this kid and Jehovah leads their life and they're in praise all the time. So he actually had a good name. And Judas at that point in history, around the time of Jesus, was a good and common name. But there was one man that messed it up, wasn't there? We'll, we'll study him next week. He messed up the name Judas so bad that nobody wants to name their kid Judas anymore, right? You have any friends named Judas, any family members, even any black sheep of the family named Judas? Nope, not a very common name anymore. <clears throat> but we do have Judas here who was not the one who messed it up, who was a good man, an apostle, and he did share the gospel. And even though he kind of lives in obscurity, he kind of draws us into his presence with what we do know about him and, and who he was. The historian, the Jewish historian Jerome calls him trionimus. Any ideas what you think trionimus might mean? Tri meaning three. Niminus kind of sounding like Naminus, right? Did that, was that too far of a stretch? Three names, yeah, Jerome calls him three names because this apostle has three names. In Matthew 10.3, he's called Thaddeus. I'm sure as you read the gospel, the name Thaddeus has come up. Also in Matthew 10.3, he's called Le Lebius. Thaddeus, Lebius, and Judas, the son of James. Now in our study, again, we're nearing, this is the 11th apostle. Have you ever noticed about how a lot of the apostles have multiple names? Isn't that kind of weird? Some Jesus names specifically, like our first apostle was Peter, right? Simon and Peter, and Jesus would call him by either Simon or Peter, depending on where he was standing spiritually in God's will, right? Here's Judas, the son of James, has two other names, which are more like nicknames as we look at it. But I think it's kind of bringing things down to earth that in the Bible, the Word of God reveals to us that a lot of these apostles had either other names or nicknames. Because don't we have nicknames for each other? I can guarantee you, Christy's got a number of nicknames for me, depending on how I'm acting, right? We have nicknames for each other. We have our buddies that we call different names and that. I think this, the name thing kind of brings this all down to our level on an even playing field that we can relate with these common men that although God lifted them and elevated them on high, they were common men to start with and they had nicknames just like a lot of us. Did any of you have a nickname in school? No? Mine was. I kind of don't know if it was a good nickname or not, but I was called Pooh Bear. I don't know if that's a blessing or maybe something saying like that, but one of my friends called me Pooh Bear all the time in junior high, so I'll just take that for what it is. That's a freebie, and let's just not go there anymore. We'll just skip on from that one, right? You be quiet. So, I'm like Pooh Bear from now on. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> Careful what you speak. It could 
stay with you for a life, right? So Judas was given the name at birth called Jehovah Leeds, or Peace. It's actually a wonderful name, and I'm sure his parents, by the way, if you're watching, you can't see what Richard and Christy are doing. They're having nonverbal communication, and they need to pay attention to the sermon because they're being bad children and going in timeout right now. They're planning and scheming for the rest of the service. So, But Judas is actually a good name. And I'm sure when his parents gave it to him, they had great hopes that Jehovah, Jehovah God, would lead this young child into God's will. But his other two names that we've mentioned are actually kind of interesting and not so much of a highlight, I think, for Judas, because like my nickname that I'm sure Richard and Christy are going to call me from now on, it's not quite the compliment that you would think of it. So we have the first one, Thaddeus. Well, Thaddeus isn't on the top 10 list of baby names for boys this year, right? You know why? Because Thaddeus literally means breast child. Breast child, now isn't that deep and theological? Terry, you can write that in your notes. That's gonna make a lot of impact in your life, isn't it? Literally, we would translate it as a woman nursing a newborn babe, or what we would call it in modern terms is mama's boy right mama's boy that's essentially what thaddeus means is mama's boy now he could have been nicknamed mama's boy for a number of reasons right where does your mind go first well maybe he was kind of a sissy little guy right or maybe he was tender-hearted maybe he was the last in line of a lot of brothers and sisters and he was mom's favorite we don't know but we do know that he was given this name Thaddeus, and it's mentioned in the Bible, intently, on purpose, which means breast child, which we would translate it today as mama's boy. And then there's his other name, Labius. Labius in Hebrew literally means heart child. Heart child. So we would translate that this morning more like this, tender-hearted. So we have mama's boy, and we have tender-hearted, meaning that Judas, the son of James, was probably not a very loud, outspoken kind of guy, was he? He was probably more of a quiet, compassionate, sensitive individual. He was more of what you would call a, a, a man with a, a soft heart for others and himself, maybe even sensitive. He was completely the opposite of Simon the Zealot. Did you see God's sense of humor as he puts Judas, the son of James, and Simon the Zealot together for several years and says, hey boys, let's see you two get along, right? Simon the Zealot just out and going and, you know, no sissy men around here. And then here's this tender-hearted Judas that's compassionate for others, going, dude, 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 just bring it down a couple notches, okay? These two guys were together for years, two years with Christ, being trained to come together. Now there's a huge impact here, a little freebie in here for us, that in the church, it's a good thing we are exactly all the same, right? Well, we're not all the same, aren't we? You ever gone to a church or been in a church where somebody just kind of rubs you the what? Wrong way. I was hoping for someone saying the right way, but that didn't happen, right? Because we think of that negative. It's rubbing us the wrong way. One of the challenges is in the church of God is to learn to appreciate those other individuals for the giftedness that God has given them, the abilities God has given them, the different insights God has given, them, given to them that are different from ours. 
And that's kind of growing together as a family of God. That we won't just spend this lifetime together, but how much of a lifetime will we spend together? All eternity. And God creates us specifically. Some are little fireballs out there leading the path, right? Others are more quiet and compassionate and sincere in the background. Which one is used by God most? Neither one. God chooses to use both equally in his kingdom because both have a place in the family of God in the kingdom of heaven where their giftedness, their talents, their personality are extremely needed. Now if you're in a church situation where there's an issue going on in the church and you're having a congregational meeting, do you want the fireball to be leading? No. You want the one that's compassionate and sensitive to others' feelings and wanting the good for all to be leading that. But then if you have a church that's kind of spiritually lacking in a little fervor, that's kind of you know, filling the pews and laying there and sleeping during the service, do you want a compassionate, tender person to be speaking to them? No, you want that fireball out there going, wake up, people, come on, get up and go to work, right? So God uses both personalities in his kingdom. Therefore, whatever your personality is, God is using that for specific instances and situations in his church. But interesting group. Judas, the son of James, essentially except for one verse in the Bible, besides what we read about the calling of the apostles, lives in obscurity. Total obscurity. So let me ask you a question. Is it bad to live in obscurity? Depends how you look at it, I guess, right? I mean, we're not called to be solo Christians isolated, but... There are times that God calls us to be peaceful, patient. He calls us, he tells, Jesus even speaks to us in the Bible and says, when you go to pray, do what? Go where? Go into your inner closet by yourself and pray where your Father in heaven hears you. But don't be like the Pharisees who go out on the street corner proclaiming your prayer before all that all may hear your prayer. Right? Jesus says, when you give, give in secret, that your right hand may not know what your left hand is doing, that God may honor you and bless you for your sincere giving of the heart without any recognition, without any praise, without any self-honoring. So being in obscurity is not a bad thing, depending on the situation. Judas, the son of James, pretty much lives in obscurity, and there's not much written in worldly history about him. But I guarantee you, in heavenly history, there must be volumes written about this man. Because we think of the sheer fact that Jesus went and prayed all night over his, over his apostles before he called them. And then he handpicked and chose them individually out of the hundreds or thousands of disciples that were following him. And that should tell us what? That this man literally had God's blessing upon him to become a minister of the gospel. And what higher of an honor can you ask for than that? I mean, Judas 
the son of James once again exemplifies himself that in his mind, it is enough. In fact, it is more than enough just to know God and that we have salvation in him. And if we have just that, then we don't need anything else to serve God, do we? We don't need our plaques on the back of the pews or our name listed in the bulletin or our, 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 our name on the marquee or our voice mentioned from the pulpit because it's enough to know Jesus and to know that we have been saved by him, we are in his ministry, and we get the honor to serve him both now and in eternity. Service in Jesus, one, because we love him, but two, because it's, it's an acknowledgement of the great debt that he has paid by taking our sin upon us. That we are appreciative and aware of the cost of our salvation. And therefore, we need no personal recognition. We don't need to be in the limelight. We are more than content with godliness to stay in the background and say, Lord, you have saved me. I will serve you and give you my life. Isn't that impactful? We go from Simon the Zealot to Judas the son of James, two radical different personalities. One never lived down the name Zealot, must have been a fireball all his life. One, except for the calling of the apostles, mentioned one time in the Word of God, and the rest of his life lives in obscurity, serving faithfully his Lord and Savior and God. What a witness for a life! And I would say this, what a witness for a life well spent, wouldn't you say? A life well spent in total, sold-out dedication to God. Because we live in such a world that everybody cries out, look at me, notice me, I have to express myself, I have to be seen. And here's a man that says, no. I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I have been saved by the stripes on his back and his body. I have been given salvation and grace and my debt has been paid in full and I will see the salvation of my Lord when he returns and spend eternity with him in heaven and that is enough to dedicate my life to him in service. You see why James, the son of Jude, uh, or Judas, the son of James, although he lives in worldly obscurity, Really, his life has such an impact and message for us? To be content in his godliness, to live a life well spent of just quietly serving the Lord. What a great challenge, isn't it? What a great challenge for us to think that if I never got noticed or recognized or if nobody ever know what I did or gave for God, that would actually be a good thing because God in heaven would know and the angels would know even though no one in this earthly world would know that is a life well spent John 14 here's the one verse where we find Judas the son of James mentioned specifically by name except for the calling of the 12 apostles. John 14, 22. 
And I honestly don't like how it starts because there's a history here. The first words in John 14, 22 are this. Judas, comma, what? Not Iscariot. So catch this. So in the calling of the apostles, he is Judas who? The son of James, right? And then he's Thaddeus and he's Lebanus. But now, for the rest of history, he is known as, hey, I'm Judas, but not Iscariot. How would you like to have to live the rest of your life like that? That every time you came in, in public and introduced yourself, you're like, hey, I'm Judas. Oh, by the way, not that Judas. You'd always have to distinguish yourself from that Judas. Wouldn't that be a little mentally challenging? You know? Yeah, I'm Judas. Well, wait, wait, before you get your mindset there, I'm not that Judas. I'm the other Judas. So it says this, Judas, not Iscariot, said to Jesus, Lord, what has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not the world, period? That's it, woo! Actually, in this one verse, there is a lot of impact, you know that? Because here is what this tender-hearted man is doing. He's in a conversation with Jesus, and they've had this discourse going on and the one time Judas, not Iscariot, Judas the son of James speaks out, he's in a place where he realizes that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior of the world, the promised one to come. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is here. He is now. And Jesus, over the course of these two years, is revealing himself to the apostles. But Judas, the son of James, brings forth an urgent message that's very subtle if you don't catch it. It's kind of like this, Lord, you are the Messiah. You are the foretold prophesied one, the son of God. You are God and you're revealing yourself to us. And Lord, that is awesome. We are so grateful and thank you. But Lord, the world who needs you so desperately doesn't what know you yet lord when are you going to reveal yourself to them in this man's obscurity with the one question that's placed in the bible that he asked jesus we hear and see and get a sense of the heart of an evangelist whose heart is broken for the world because he's here saying, Lord, you are blessing us so much. We're in your presence. We know who you are. But Lord, there's a world out there that needs to know you. There are souls that are unsaved and lost, and they need to know who you are. Lord, when are you going to reveal yourself to them? Do you catch that in this verse? Can you sense that where he's saying, Lord, when are you going to reveal yourself to them? They need you. Now, I don't know about you, but... I can't say that I always have that compassionate of a heart for the rest of the world. Do you? That as you walk around daily and you see those who you're working with, that you cross in a hall or at the desk or um, you walk through in the park or you see in the grocery store or at the family gatherings that you look at them and your heart cries out going, God, they don't know you. It's imperative that you reveal yourself to the God. They've got to know you before they die. Do you ever, ever have that sense of urgency for those that are lost? That's the heart that Judas, the son of James, 
had. Yeah, he was called kind of a mama's boy or tender-hearted, but his name meant praise or Jehovah leads, and I think he lived up to his namesake, don't you? Because Jehovah leads, Jesus says he came that how many might come to salvation? All the world might come to salvation if they would only turn and seek him. And Judas, the son of James, in his obscurity, has that heart after God's own heart that all would come to salvation, that Jesus would reveal his deity, his holiness, his godliness to all those who didn't know him. What a compassionate, heart-believing, faithful evangelist we have in this man. And he challenges, I don't know about you, but he challenges me with a question that as I read and I study about this man, the challenge comes to me going, John, don't you have a heart for the lost? Don't you have a heart that they would come to know? That you would step away from your fear of speaking out for God and share with them who Jesus is? I mean, let's ask the question honestly. Every time we've got a chance to speak about Jesus Christ, we do it in public, right? No, we don't. That's where James challenges, or Judas challenges me here. Because he's like, John, you love God, and you want to serve God, but you've got to have a passion for the lost to come to know Christ. You've got to have a passion for those men and women around the world that if they don't come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ, they will be damned in hell for all eternity. John, you've got to have the heart of Jesus that cries out for their salvation and their need for God to be met. You see, our world is looking for all kinds of gods, right? Whether it be the God of self, the God of idolatry, the God of riches, the God of fame, the God of glory, the God of gluttony, the God of relationship, the God of whatever you want to call it. Our world is looking for gods. But they're not looking for the one true living God in Jesus Christ. And that's where James is hitting you and I square in the eye with his life, saying, you got to have a heart for the lost. You gotta care. You gotta cry out to God of Jesus, when will you reveal yourself to them? To challenge you like it challenges me? It's a really pretty heavy message for a very obscure man in the Bible, isn't it? One verse, one verse that takes me down to my knees. Saying, John, you got a ways to go. You got a way to go. He was a believing disciple, and Jesus has the compassion to answer him. And I think Jesus answers Judas, the son of James, with the same compassion and tenderness that Judas asked Jesus the question about when he's going to reveal himself to others. And this is what Jesus says as you read on in John 14. It says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode in him. Now, you've got to break this sentence down, this answer of Jesus. Because what Jesus is saying is, he's like, Judas, you've got to understand, 
I won't turn anybody away from me. But their heart needs to be somewhere first. And where is that? Their heart needs to be seeking me. The Decalogue, the first commands are, you shall love the, God, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your strength. And the second is, is equal, you will love your neighbor as yourself. But the first commandment, if you get the first commandment down, man, you'll get the rest of them down easy, I promise you. You are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your might, with all of your strength, with everything you have. And Jesus says, Judas, I hear you. Believe me, I hear you. I came to save these people. I hear the, the cry of your heart in desperation for the world to know you. But I promise you this. My dear Judas, my apostle, I will not turn any away who truly seek me. And this will be the evidence of those who truly seek me. They will keep my word. And when they keep my word, my Father, who is in heaven, will come to that individual. In essence, will call that individual, will lift the veil of darkness from their eyes, and we will come and make our abode in him. In other words, we will indwell in him with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, Judas, we're not going to turn anybody away, but they have to be seeking me. Because until someone is truly seeking Jesus, what happens? Nothing. You ever shared the gospel with someone out of a true tenderness and heartfeltness and been praying as you're sharing and witnessing, crying for them to grab hold of that and come to salvation and are like, hmm, yeah, thanks, appreciate it, have a good day, see you later, we'll have coffee next week. And you're like, I just poured my heart out to you about, about God, about Jesus and salvation. And that's it? Why don't they respond? because they're not truly seeking the Lord. They're still having these other little mini-gods throughout their life that are, are gods of their own image, of their own making, of the tickling of their own ears that they want to have. But it's not the one true God. They only want to submit to gods that are gods in their likeness, that do the things they want them to do. They don't want the God of the Bible that is both, both gracious and judging. The God who will, like the apostles and like us, transform them from who they are to who they need to be. Jesus goes on in verse 24 and says, He who doesn't love me doesn't keep my words. And the word which is in you, which you hear, is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Jesus keeps coming back to this issue of keeping the word of God. In other words, he goes, those that are truly seeking me, that truly seek to have a relationship with the Savior, the God of creation, will have a heart that compels them to live out what I call them to do. And my Father will notice them and will call them and lift that veil of darkness from their eyes, and we will come to them in salvation and dwell within them. You see, we always joke about the fact that young Christians say, I found God on Sunday. And the pastor's thinking, God was never lost. You didn't find him. He found you, right? 
We are called by God only because we respond to God's calling upon our lives. But somewhere God calls us to his presence and lifts that veil of darkness because somewhere in our heart of hearts we are truly seeking more than all these little mini demigods that fail us. These idols that fill our lives and really do nothing for us. As the Old Testament talks about, they just, they're just kind of there. They're like a little silver or wooden statue that we pray to, we honor, we give homage to, we, we praise our bank account, we praise our position, but they really don't do anything for us, especially eternally or an emotional or spiritual healing. And Jesus is telling Judas, he says, when people come to a point that they're ready to put that away, realizing that those idols do nothing for them, and their self-made up worship of these gods does nothing for them, and they truly are crying out saying, if there is a God out there, show yourself to me. God hears that call responds and calls them to his presence where the veil of sin is lifted and their eyes are spiritually opened and God intervenes and intersects in their life with someone who brings the gospel message just at the right time when their heart is tender and open and willing and God brings that person there and causes them to minister to them a man like Judas who had a compassion for the lost to bring them salvation and a beautiful thing happens because they respond come to salvation and the Bible says that when one individual comes to salvation what do all the angels in heaven do they rejoice and it's a miracle of new life to see the whole picture here about Judas living in the obscurity it's really not so obscure because what this man does in silence and obscurity is shouted in the realms of heaven as he leads men and women to salvation. I think in my warped weirdness of my own mind that as this Judas went out and preached and we know that Jesus made him into a preacher, even as a tender-hearted man, he made him into a preacher going out preaching the gospel of salvation and there had to be some of those who came to salvation and the Bible says when one comes to salvation, the angels in heaven rejoice. Can you imagine when 10, 20, or 500 come to salvation? Wow! We think a birthday party is cool, huh? From the world's point of view, this man is just kind of in the darkness, behind the scenes, doesn't seem like much of a man. He's a sensitive kind of mama's boy, quiet and obscure, but in the realms of heaven. His name is on the foundation pillar, New Jerusalem and the angels of heaven have been rejoicing because of those who came to salvation because of his heart for the lost and his preaching of the gospel that Jesus enabled him to do. And again, I'll say it again, that is a life worth living for. Isn't it? That I would not draw honor to myself or need the praise of man, but I would only seek to serve my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and one day come into his presence and have him say several simple words, a simple sentence to him saying, John, well done, my good and faithful servant. That trumps anything I could ever have in this world. Anything. 
that Jesus would say that to you and to me. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You see, often we come to people and we share the gospel with them. They're just not ready, right? And so we share the gospel with them again and they're just not ready, right? And we do it again and they're what? They're just not ready. Because they're not seeking the true God. They're still holding on to these things of the world that they think can satisfy and fill them. When in the depth of the back of their mind, they know that they don't. But we are a strange people that sometimes hold on to things that literally hurt us, don't we? Because we think somehow something's going to come of it. You ever, ever have anyone say, yeah, I know about Jesus and all that, but I just don't get this God thing. Well, it's not for lack of information, I promise you that. Because if they were truly seeking God in today's day and age with all the technology and media and resources, do you think they could find anything out about God? Absolutely, there's resources everywhere. So it's not about having intellectual understanding about God. It's about having a heart that is crying out saying, God, if you are there, will you speak to me? you come to me and that may need to be our prayer for those who don't have salvation bring them to their knees Lord in a place that they have nowhere to turn except to you that they would cry out to you God if you're there come to me come to me the Apostle Paul makes this statement about those who are in darkness and sin and don't see Christ. He says, if the gospel is veiled, in other words, if the gospel message, the light of the gospel has a veil over it, covering it, it can't be seen, it is veiled to those that are perishing because the God of this world has blinded their minds and they can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So we need to pray that that veil is lifted, don't we? That they come to a point their idols run out and the veil of God is lifted from them and they see and seek the glory of Christ. And we as Christians are no different as we intercede for each other because one of the things that we should be doing that we don't often do, that we know as Christians we go through things called spiritual battles, right? We go through spiritual struggles where Satan can't and his evil can't bring us down but he can tempt us he can harass us how often are we interceding for the saints for one another saying god protect him protect her from the spiritual battle and help them to overcome that spiritual battle in the name of jesus christ and the power of god because we go through battles don't we and we know each other goes through battles but how often are we interceding hard do we have that compassionate heart of of Judas the son of James saying Lord not only bring your yourself to the world but Lord for those that are in your kingdom that are struggling that are spiritual attack Lord protect them and drive that spiritual attack away that they may live fully in your will and your glory and serve you with an open heart a little side note is a little bit of the worldly history that we know about Judas the son of James is this. Worldly church history states that what Judas the son of James did as he went to his ministry was he was known for healing people of many, many diseases wherever he went. He preached and he healed and he preached and he healed and he preached and he healed. 
One of the church notes states about the history was that he healed a man named Adgar, who was the king of Syria during his preaching. And this Adgar, the king of Syria, came to salvation because of the preaching of Judas, the son of James. And he became such a devout Christian that his apostate nephew captured James or Judas, the son of James, and had him killed. And there's a little worldly jealousy, isn't it? Where this King Adgar comes to salvation, becomes such a devout Christian, so suddenly outspoken in the kingdom for God, that his apostate nephew says, I am taking the preacher out who brought you to salvation. And if you look in church symbolism, if you ever do any of that, you'll see that there is a symbol for Judas, the son of James, and it's a big club. It's like a massive steroided baseball bat. You know why that is? Because that's how this apostate nephew had him killed. By beating and bludgeoning him to death with a massive club. So Judas, son of James, obscure in worldly history, but renowned in the kingdom of God. What does this man speak to us? What kind of person can God use? An outspoken one or a quiet one? Or both? Because they both have a place in the kingdom of heaven. And Judas, the son of James's biggest legacy is to, uh, to us is this, where we can grab on and embrace this and catch hold of it and say, Lord, help me to not only understand this, but apply this to my life, to live this out like this man that you specifically called by name and trained and then sent out. The biggest thing we can catch is this, have a heart of compassion for the lost. out to God that he would take the veil of darkness of sin from their eyes and they would truly seek the one true God. Have that heart of compassion for those in the world that don't know Jesus. And isn't that a challenge enough for one Sunday? Maybe for the whole year? But that's what Judas teaches us. Judas, Jehovah leads a man of peace. A man whose heart was bent that it would not just be him knowing who Jesus was but that the world would know and turn to him in salvation let's pray father in heaven we are so amazed and blown away by the examples of your apostles the different variety of men that each one of them challenges us in a different way to grow closer to you, to like David and like Judas, the son of James, to have a heart of compassion, a heart after your own heart for those who need salvation. We pray that the faith of this man would infiltrate our very hearts and minds and change us to give us that compassionate heart for the lost like you have, like you came to save. Lord, we thank you for the example of this man. We look forward to the day that we will meet him and greet him and be overwhelmed by his love for you and his desire for the lost to come to you. In Jesus' name.